Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where today we are going to be talking about cultural representations of black masculinity. And this is a topic that I have read about a bunch. I've, I've included it in a bunch of my courses on popular culture. And it's a, a subject that is so fascinating when thinking about the moment that we are in here in 2020, the representation of black men in popular culture. And it, the historic roots of it are so deep and so powerful and so pervasive in cultural representations today and the way in which black men are perceived by so many around the world. And it's because of these really powerful, pervasive cultural outlets, whether it's film, literature, certainly music has a lot to do with it. And also fashion is central to this process as well. And that is the subject of a new book entitled He Thinks He's Down, White Appropriations of Black Masculinities in the Civil Rights Era. It's by Catherine Bush from Carleton University, and it dives into how black men were perceived and represented in literature, film, fashion during the 1960s and 1970s, with specific examples of Norman Mailer and Jack Kerouac and their written work in the fashion realm it's hugh hefner and playboy and as we talk about with catherine the idea of what playboy was at that time very different from what it would become in the 90s and 2000s and then we also get into black exploitation films and the depiction of black men in those movies so i have a great personal interest in this but i also think it's very important to explore and analyze the historic roots of this representation within the popular culture because it has such a powerful influence today. So I was very pleased to have the opportunity to talk with Catherine Bush. So let's get to that conversation. All right. And Catherine Bush is joining us today. Catherine, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to talking about the book again. It's He Thinks He's Down, White Appropriations of Black Masculinities in the Civil Rights Era. And we should say off of the top that in a way, we're colleagues. I'm an adjunct professor in the history department at Carleton University. And of course, Catherine is in the Pauline Jewett Institute of Gender and Women's Studies. So kind of colleagues in a way. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so let's get into the book. And this is a topic that certainly comes up in my work when I'm teaching and, and reading about the post-Second World War era in the United States. And in my research that, that I've done, it's mostly on the radio side, so a lot of music. And of course, this book is not centered on music. So I'm just curious to start about the cultural topics that you selected, because so much has been made in the literature and just the popular ideas about black culture in music. And I think Elvis is the primary example of that and, and how he took so much from black artists in his work. So why did you end up deciding on these three particular tenets of culture to focus on in the book? Well, 
I mean, as you say, there has been a lot done about music. So I wanted to try something new. Um, I think, as you say, like in the popular zeitgeist and, and in all the literature, there's a lot done about what happened in appropriations of um, black culture through music. And I had learned all of that and thought, you know, is there somewhere else where this is also happening? And I actually wrote my master's thesis on film. So I first encountered black exploitation through my master's thesis. And I knew that there was something going on there. So I knew I wanted to do part of the work on film, especially black exploitation, and think about what happened when white directors picked up black exploitation. And then I kind of fell into the literature and fashion through researching other things. I came across Norman Mailer when I was reading James Baldwin and he responded to Norman Mailer's essay. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I kind of had my in that way. And Norman Mailer spoke about, about Jack Kerouac is how I got to him. And a lot of people wrote about Hugh Hefner's politics in that era. So I just became sort of fascinated with his racial politics and then started reading issues of the magazine and noticed the fashion. So I kind of came to everything through other people. That, that's pretty interesting, right? Because normally I, I think the way people conceive of book projects is you have your broad idea and then you go into it. So I like seeing the connective tissue within the research and the thinking about the project because generally speaking, that would lead to a more rounded or a better rounded project in the end. And did you find that as you were writing it that because the research took you through these interconnected people that the final book feels a little more interconnected? Yeah, absolutely. Because they, while they didn't always run in the same circles necessarily, they were all somewhat connected to each other. Mainly because, I mean, of course, they were um, artists and creators in that era who were reading each other's work and looking at each other's work. And I felt that doing it that way meant that I was looking, while I was looking at different kinds of culture, I was essentially looking at this one um, moment or this one group of people who were all in conversation with each other. And were these people who were conscious of what they were doing or were, was it more of a case of, you know, they're friends, they know of each other and that's just sort of, there, there's going to be a natural influence there? Or are they consciously working on the projects in some form of collaboration? I think it's just that they knew more about each other. I think each of the people or the work that I explored um, didn't necessarily think that they were in conversation with each other, um, but they were aware of each other's work. And certainly people outside of that um, the people I studied were aware of what these people were doing. As I mentioned, James Baldwin wrote quite a bit about Norman Mailer's racial politics and um, other people were commenting on Hugh Hefner. And so I think um, they weren't necessarily in conversation with each other or aware that they were participating in the same um, behavior. So let, let's get into this in some of the specifics. So let's start with the literature, because you've mentioned 
uh, Norman Mailer and, and Jack Kerouac. And mm -hmm. I, I think, at least for me, and I, by no one would ever accuse me of being an expert in literature. Like whenever I go to trivia and there's a literature question, nobody on the team even bothers to look at me because uh, <laughs> right? I, I have no idea. So, uh, but but I, I think for me at least, I think of those two. Are are they within the the beatnik community? Well, certainly Jack Kerouac was, um, or that's how people would describe him now. Uh, Norman Mailer, not so much. I mean, Norman Mailer was more, I guess the way to think about it is Norman Mailer was more mainstream than Jack Kerouac was at the time. While Jack Kerouac is quite mainstream now and is very well known, he was more sort of off the path at the time. And Norman Mailer definitely was you know, socializing at big New York parties with the literati. And uh, he definitely was very much of uh, that community. So how is their work fitting into this narrative that, that you found that they're relying on, on tropes and doing things that ultimately are uh, damaging to the uh, masculinity of black men and the perception of this? Because Again, the I, I think at least when I think of these types of authors, they come across again in the popular zeitgeist. I think is somewhat progressive. So, so mm -hmm. what what are some of the specifics that you see in their writing that are contributing to this broader uh, influence on black masculinity? So, I mean, I think they actually were progressive, if I can use that word, in some ways. And the reason, part of the reason I chose the people I chose is I wanted to pick people who, well, first of all, talked about race and yeah. talked about um, black men, but also people who were trying in their way to push the conversation forward and more think about how through that they still used stereotypes about black men. And part of it was because they didn't actually, at least in the case of Norman Mailer and Jack Kerouac, necessarily spend any time with black people. They thought they knew and they wrote about it and they certainly were fascinated by black men, but they weren't directly involved in say, for instance, an activist moment or uh, with the people who were part of activist organizations at the time. So I think what ultimately happened was that they, again, they thought they were pushing the conversation forward by talking about black men at all, but they relied on a series of stereotypes about black men to sort of enhance their own work in a way that didn't serve any purpose for actual equality or movement forward. Is this something that they were themselves conscious of? That mm. Maybe not that their work wasn't necessarily pushing anything forward, but their isolation from the black community and their using of these ideas without actually having firsthand knowledge or firsthand relationships with people from the community? I'm not, you know, I can't, um, 
say for sure. I can only go on what I had access to through the archives and looking at their notebooks and their work, but certainly I didn't find any evidence that they were aware really of what they were doing, and certainly not Jack Kerouac, who I think, at least from reading his notebooks and reading his works, I think he actually thought that he knew quite a bit about black men. Um, Again, he had a fascination with this concept of the outsider. And I think, he, and I guess actually true to, to Norman Mailer writing the essay, The White Negro, that I, he really thought that he knew what he was talking about. Um, but as I said, I mean, even in the moment, he was called out by other people for not really knowing what he was talking about. So who's doing that, actually? That's an interesting point, that he is being called out, but by whom? And what sort of agency within the wider popular culture do those people have, and how much influence are they having on the wider discussion around their work? Right. So, I mean, most as I mentioned, most famously, Norman Mailer was called out by James Baldwin, who published an article in response to The White Negro, um, so it was out there in the world, but I don't think, I mean, James Baldwin was definitely popular and now is even more popular, but whether or not he was being read by the wider society, I would, I, I can't say for sure, but I would doubt that, um, James Baldwin was particularly mainstream in that moment. Um, but he, yeah, he did write a very direct essay that he published questioning Norman Mailer's motives. And, and James Baldwin is a really interesting figure. I recently watched uh, a feature of the debate he had at the Oxford Union. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember who it was against, but the, the person who was a, a segregationist, basically, and James Baldwin was talking about how you know, black people aren't inferior. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that was basically the debate. But watching that clip of James Baldwin, he just a brilliant figure and somebody who, yeah, in the moment, you're right, broadly, how many people were reading his, his stuff? I, I'm not entirely sure either, but that is a powerful voice. And if, if he's being critical of your work, it is definitely something that as an author, you would want to take seriously. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine so. Um, I actually, in researching for the book, I did a lot of research uh, about James Baldwin's work, not so much the impact of the work, uh, because of this essay that he wrote, and um, thought about including a whole section about James Baldwin in the book, but it just didn't um, quite fit uh, with uh, the chapter, but he definitely was a formidable figure, and I have no doubt that Norman Mailer was aware that he had been criticized by James Baldwin. My take on Norman Mailer, again, it's limited to what I read in the archives and read about him, is that he maybe didn't care that people <laughs> were criticizing him. I mean, he certainly, at least in his outward appearance, had a lot of bravado and a, a lot of ego. And I, I'm not sure that he would have taken, um, he may have personally been hurt and taken it seriously, but I'm not sure if he ever would have publicly admitted that. Well, yeah, that's just part of being a public figure, right? That you, <laughs> you have to have some level of not, 
openly caring about what people say because exactly right like just just to put stuff out in the world there is going to be people who don't like it and there there's this balance right and and so something i found with the show even is you want people to give you feedback because you want to improve it and if there's things that are lacking and and areas that the show could improve on you want to hear that but it has to be balanced against things that are just mean and you know in the in the internet era it's really easy for people to be mean to you uh, yes. if they don't like what you're doing <laughs> but and, and so it's an interesting balance like how how do you or what criticisms do you take seriously and which ones do you acknowledge that you've heard and are paying attention to and you know and once you get to the point where you're Norman Mailer someone of that stature that would be I think even harder to find that balance because you've had so much success and then to go out and say yeah this was wrong or I've, I want to reconsider this it, it does take some humility that tends to be lost or, or seemingly lost in the public persona of people as they get more successful yeah absolutely and I am um, part of the reason why in my acknowledgments for instance I tried to acknowledge what it takes to create work publicly because I think, you know, while I was researching the book and writing the book, I, I definitely had moments where I felt like I questioned um, whether or not these were, quote unquote, good people. Um, you know, and I tried to stay away from that and tried to stay away from a moral judgment of who these people were. Um, but partially it was because I think that it, as you say, I mean, it takes a lot to create something publicly and it takes a lot to say something publicly that may, especially at the time, would have been not acceptable, um, especially for a, a white man to say uh, in that era, to even talk about you know, equality and to talk about uh, celebrating blackness would have been very uh, not popular with a lot of people. So I try to at least acknowledge that, you know, they put something out there in the world, which takes a lot. And it's easy to critique what people have put out into the world, but it's harder to actually do it. Absolutely. And and the same, too, holds true for James Baldwin, too, right? You have to give him the same level of consideration, because when he's criticizing people or, or putting out his own work, you know, he has that same thing going on probably and to a worse degree in this era where he's going to be attacked at a more vicious level based on what he's saying and the racial dynamics at the time so not only do you have to be or do we have to be conscious of the the effort or the courage that it takes for someone like Norm Norman Miller just to be in the public eye like that of course the same goes for James Baldwin so when he's being critical of Norman Mailer, these dynamics I think are very important to the story. It's not the same as, you know, I'm sitting in my office and a colleague comes in and says, hey, like maybe we could do this differently. Like that that's one thing. But for all of it to take place within the public eye really takes a, a level of courage, when, especially when discussing these types of issues in this era in the United States. There's, there's a lot of broader societal impact that has to be taken into account for both of them. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, that was why when I was researching and writing the book, I, I came to this argument that these artists are protected by their whiteness. So, yeah. 
you know, it, it, it's, as you say, it's one thing for James Baldwin to criticize, especially, you know, to critique somebody like Norman Mailer, who was quite a, um, a large figure in the, in the literature world. Um, but, you know, when James Baldwin does something like that, he's literally taking his life in his hands, right? It's, yeah, for sure. you know, I mean, it's incredibly dangerous for him. And again, for the artists I looked at, they, no matter how controversial something they said, was they were forever protected by their whiteness, um, which, you know, they in again, is my argument in the book is that they never really questioned their white privilege and they never acknowledged their white privilege. So let's move on to fashion then. And, and I think something <laughs> that would would be very similar in that notion of not really questioning the white privilege of it. And that would be the, the story of Hugh Hefner, who. I don't know, like Hugh Hefner is such an interesting figure and such a luminary in American publishing broadly. And the idea of what Playboy is and was, it's so hard because it's come up in some of my courses and students have even asked, like, what was Playboy when it started? Because it's just so revolutionary as an idea. And yet in the contemporary era, the focus is on the nudity in it. And, mm -hmm. uh, but at the start, like, I, I don't know, like what was Hugh Hefner's initial goal with it? And how do we get to the point where this fits into this broader narrative of influencing ideas of black masculinity? When he started the magazine, at least in how he described his goal, he really wanted to counter a very specific kind of masculinity, I would say white masculinity, where, you know, the suburban post-war, uh, you know, work in the city, live in the suburbs, get married, have kids, you know, what we all are familiar with from the, say, television shows of the time, which of course didn't have reality of the 1950s and 1960s so much as what they wished their reality was. But I think that he really wanted to offer an alternative way of being, not necessarily because people would actually live the life that he was promoting, but that it could be their fantasy life. You know, some people live the life that he was promoting, the, you know, single, living in the city, perfect stereo, perfect car, perfect apartment. But in my mind, it was more of a, of a fantasy for people who were not living that life. Um, and Hugh Hefner himself, as I mentioned in the book, sort of lived that, you know, married life for a little while and then got divorced and really did live the sort of uh, idea of the ultimate bachelor. And in my mind, the inclusion of the women has a lot to do with a fear that if you're promoting a kind of masculinity that is slightly alternative in terms of caring about how you look and caring about how your home looks. And I mean, there are things about that that are quite feminine um, or at least were feminized at the time. And to me, the inclusion of the women is partially about reinforcing heterosexuality. Right. Um, whereas again, he doesn't know who's actually looking at that magazine. So it's not a, it's not a necessary heterosexuality. Anybody can be looking at that magazine. 
But in his mind, it's heterosexual men who are looking at the magazine. And you have to include those women to remind people that um, that these men are not too feminine. Yeah, that's a really good point, because I, I immediately think when you say that of somebody like Rudolph Valentino from the 20s, who was a, an actor and he was very handsome and was stylized in his mm -hmm. films. And not only was he Italian born, but because he had this look, he was often viewed in very feminine ways as someone who really cared about what he looked like, but also being an, an outsider right. and other within the American culture of the time. And there was, I don't, I, there wasn't like a gay panic necessarily around him, but there was, he was put in positions in his films that were feminizing. And some of the articles that were written about him were written in this, in this way of like you know is he gay is he not gay and basically and it was all based on the right. fact that like he combed his hair you know <laughs> right right exactly so i mean to to my mind it makes total sense to include the naked women because that again it it staves off as you say like a gay panic um and through that i would argue that you also start to get stereotypes about black masculinity because the black man is hyper sexualized and hyper masculine in the eyes of um, a white supremacist America. It kind of makes sense that he would be drawn to these stereotypes about black men as he tries to reinforce his own heterosexuality um, because the ultimate sexual figure is the black man. Right. Uh, interestingly, though, he didn't, as I mentioned in the book, I always found it interesting that it took him so long to include black women in the magazine because they have been so also hypersexualized and um, abused by the gaze of white men that I, it, it surprised me that it, it took him so long. Yeah, I, I wonder about that, too, because you, you're right that black women are not regularly featured in the film or in the film in, in the uh, magazine. But I, I do wonder mm -hmm. about that because how much of it is, I don't, I, I don't want to say necessarily a dog whistle, but let's call it a dog whistle a uh, two, two races mm -hmm. at the time who might not be comfortable with that in the magazine. And, and, you know, uh, uh, Hugh Hefner, I think, I, I don't think anyone would accuse him of being anything other than, just an outright capitalist and wanting to sell as many magazines as he could. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But at the same, at the same time, the idea of having black women pose next to images of white women, I do wonder if there was actual discussions within Playboy of creating a situation where black and white women were presented equally and that being mm -hmm. problematic for people within the organization. Yeah, that would be, and that's a good point. That would be my guess as well, is that, again, I it, it's hard to know what's Hugh Hefner and what's the other people around him. Because, um, of course, he controlled the magazine, but he wasn't alone in making the magazine. And I wonder the same thing, if it, there was pressure to keep black women out of the magazine because of uh, racial politics and you know, it's interesting that you say, you know, thinking about Playboy, it was interesting for me researching the book because I, my image of Playboy before I researched the book 
was very much the playboy of my era, which is the, you know, almost like a joke, this sort of like the bunnies and the the mansion and the the pajama parties. Um, And it wasn't until I researched the book that I found out that most of that started after he pulled away from the magazine and his daughter took over. Um, It was a very different, in some ways, magazine in the era I'm looking at. So I, yeah, to me, it was a surprise. I mean, I knew that they interviewed important people because my whole life people have been saying to me, like, I read it for the articles. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Like, we all have heard that line before. So I knew that he interviewed important people, but I didn't realize until I researched the book how political he really was in the beginning. The sort of 90s on Playboy and Hugh Hefner was basically playing a character of himself. It almost felt like a time. Exactly. Right? And you're right. Like some of the journalism work that Playboy magazine did early on was really influential. And it, mm-hmm. yeah, it is sort of a trope to say I read it for the articles, but they did have really influential political people in the magazine. And for a long time, I think they were they even had somebody as part of the White House press corps um, doing work that appeared in the magazine. So the modern conception of what Playboy is certainly isn't the way it started. But when we think about the the fashion side of it and how Playboy presented fashion to people, what types of things were they including that was being taken from the black community and included in this in the publication to market themselves to their readership? So what I mainly saw was this very, I guess I would use the word dramatic shift from the early publications sort of in the 50s and early 60s, where the fashion was very much what we would describe as I guess, you know, in our, I shouldn't say our, um, I should say my era, um, like preppy. It was very, I I describe it in the book as the Ivy Mm. League look. Um, It was very like, you know, reminiscent of the Kennedys, you know, like lots of posing next to boats (laughs) and like, you know, sweaters over the shoulder and and that kind of look. Um, And then there was this real shift to, what was much more urban, it would have been described at the time, but in my mind, when they use terms like urban, it was code for black. Because, I mean, even now, when people talk about parts of the city, they aren't just talk. I mean, they really are imagining a certain idea of class and a certain idea of race, right? And it became it looked like the fashion in the black exploitation films. That's what I first noticed. I thought, oh, that, you know, like that person is dressed like a character from a black exploitation film. And that just sort of kept popping up and became more and more present in the magazine. And um, I call it the soul aesthetic. But it was a fashion that was very much associated with urban black men. Yeah, and then I, you know, sort of near the late 70s and 80s, it it, sh- it kind of shifted away from it back to a sort of, well, it was more like motorcycles and blue right. jeans. 
um, by the 80s. And in my mind, again, like because Hugh Hefner was trying to create a fantasy of a life outside of this suburban white masculinity, it made sense that he turned to a racialized urban look because that was so far from the reality of the readers. Yeah, and, and that makes sense to me in that terms of not only what they're doing in the 60s and 70s, but also that shift in the 80s when you see this Reagan conservatism boil up and hmm. people who were super active and activists in the 60s and 70s are now in their 30s and 40s and have right. a, a wider shift. You also have the the birth or the, the reemergence of the religious right in the United States and the evangelical movement really starts in earnest and people are, are shifting towards that. So it's not that surprising to see that reflected in Playboy in the 1980s. But I do find it fascinating that in the 60s and 70s, you're marketing to these young men primarily and you're using these ideas. And it, again, it makes sense based on what you're seeing in the progressive movements at the time that this is kind of appealing to folks and it's not dissimilar. And again, I hate to go back again to 20s, 30s example of jazz music where right, jazz exactly. music was seen as not quite extreme, but not mainstream. And, and for white people who wanted to quote unquote live dangerously, they would go into a jazz club and it was a, an exciting moment for them. So I could see this parallel in the 60s and 70s. But the one thing that I want to ask about relative to this is how much of it, this is similar to Mailer and Kerouac, were there black staff writers at Playboy? Was there consultation mm -hmm. with the black community in putting together some of the material that would ultimately go out in the publication? So that's an excellent question. I did not come across anything that would indicate that. Most of my, what I found in the research was about um, the head of the fashion department who was a white man. And I didn't come across any indication that there was any kind of consultation beyond informal consultation. I mean, I would say that as I say in the book, Hugh Hefner himself did spend a lot of time with prominent black men at the time in like prominent in pop culture. So in his um, the brief TV show he had, for instance, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. was a common right. guest on the show. And but as you say, it was much more of a sort of um, uh, jazz era, um, you know, crooners, that sort of like from the 1950s right. people. Uh, I found no evidence that he spent a lot of time with people who were prominent activists in the moment of the 60s and 70s. For instance, like uh, I mentioned in the book, he interviewed a lot of um, activists who promoted a certain kind of liberal integrationist politics but he never interviewed that I found, I could be totally wrong, but I never found any evidence that he spent a lot of time with uh, Stokely Carmichael or, um, you know, uh, Fred Hampton or anybody who was making waves in the activist community at the time. So, you know, not that I found, but that certainly could have been part of it. And I, 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 I mean, I 
would like to think that he consulted people, but it didn't really seem like he did. Yeah, and (laughs) in that era, too, sometimes I feel like there was lower P politics and capital P politics in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to, you know, talk about presidential politics and uh, just basically what's going on within Washington and elected officials. And then there's another thing to talk about what's going on primarily in the South, right? Especially around the times of freedom rides and all the, all those things that lead to violence against black people in the South, right? Engaging with Mm -hmm. those people, it's a different, it, it would bring a different focus onto the magazine than some of the other work that they were doing. Yeah, absolutely. Although, I mean, he did integrate uh, his Southern Playboy clubs, much to the uh, dislike of some of the owners of those clubs in the South. He uh, said they had to integrate the clubs, which, you know, was a big move at the time. So again, he was involved heavily in, as you say, like a small P politics, but of a certain kind. Um, and as, and also, as you say, like they primarily the magazine was to make money. (laughs) So there's always a capitalist imperative, which I struggled a lot with when I was researching and writing the book, because all of what I looked at was being sold for money. So the, the underlying sort of, um, thrust of capitalism was something that it was hard to think about when you're thinking about people and their ideas and thinking about what kind of art they wanted to promote because ultimately they're trying to sell something. So, you know, it, it always complicates For the sure. story. And I think that brings us nicely to black exploitation films, um, sort of ultimately a, a capitalist project. But for anyone who doesn't know, because I'll say this, I've never seen a black exploitation film in its entirety. I've read about them. I've seen clips okay. about them. Certainly, I know Family Guy has leaned on black exploitation films as like a joke, as a cutaway in a bunch of episodes. But for anyone who doesn't know, how would you describe a black exploitation film and how can you identify it when you're watching one? So, black exploitation was so it's a play on the exploitation film. Exploitation films have always been films that have high levels like gratuitous levels of violence and sex and the black exploitation film was specifically centered around usually centered around a black urban character usually a man although not always of course pam greer famously made um uh, black exploitation films where she was the star but primarily it's black men in urban environments who are irreverent to a certain extent. And then the film has the exploitation thread of high levels of violence and sexuality. Um, but the early black exploitation films especially were a direct hit at a Hollywood that remained incredibly white. It still remains incredibly white. Um, and the black exploitation films were meant to show a, I guess, a, yeah, I would still use the word irreverence, like this sort of, um, the black male character is very, 
assured and very um, openly um, threatening to white supremacy and very um, hyper-masculinized, I would say. Even in the Pam Greer films where she starred in the film as the lead, there was still a hyper-masculinity throughout the film. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the most famous example of this or the most mainstream would be Shaft. Yeah, and for sure. So w when we're talking about these types of films and the violence, the sexualization of them, it, it's, it's interesting to think about, obviously you mentioned exploitation films, but I, I also try to put it in contemporary mindset of maybe it's not the greatest comparison, but just action movies today uh, you know, the Fast and the Furious movies, for instance, like th there seems to be parallels in, in some of the broad strokes of violent sex, put it on the screen, go. And mm -hmm. so, so how much does the race then impact some of these broader tropes that we see in not just film, but popular culture in general, where, you know, violence sells, sex sells. So how does the racial element fit in to these kind of universal cultural ideas? So I would say that, yeah, that's an excellent point about the way action films work generally. I would say that at least in the early black exploitation, it was they were unique in the way that they were produced. So they were produced mostly by black people, which was completely unheard of at the time. They had a mostly black cast, which also complete. I mean, that's unheard of now. Yeah, like yeah. I. <laughs> I mean, these are things that are still a problem in Hollywood. Uh, so a mostly black cast. And throughout the narrative, there were direct hits at white supremacy. So it wasn't just somebody, you know, like in Shaft, for instance, you could see Shaft as just a cop film, right? He's a cop. We've seen many cop films where the cop is like slightly unhinged and, you know, goes that extra mile to get the bad guy through violent behavior. But... In, in these films, there were com there was commentary directly about racism and white supremacy. So the way they referred to white people, the way they referred to a corrupt white system. In Shaft, for instance, he's being held back by a white boss who is incredibly racist. So you had, it was more sort of in the themes and narrative of the story that you saw a deeper commentary than perhaps like Hobbs and Shaw. Right, right. You know, I mean, Hobbs and Shaw made a bizarre commentary about like Polynesian culture, but, you know, it's a little different. Um, but as you say, like, I mean, a lot of people at the time, especially critics, did not like black exploitation. Like they saw it as exactly as you're describing, just sort of like frivolous, over-the-top violence and sex. Right. And, and it's very different, too, from some other cop shows. Like, I immediately think of something like I Spy, which, you know, the TV mm -hmm. show, because it's on TV, obviously it's not going to have the same level of sex and violence. But Bill Cosby in that show was very specific of, I'm not going to be subservient to, basically the show is, it's a buddy, not a quite buddy cop show, but it's Cosby and he has a white partner and I, I do remember Bill Cosby saying that he was not going to be seen as subservient in that role 
And that's right. a very different right. type of social commentary that's being presented to the viewer than what you would see in a black exploitation film. And even, I mean, it's not just white critics who had a problem with black exploitation. A lot of black critics had a problem with it because they felt that it just reinforced stereotypes about black right. men. And and it's sort of that dangerous idea where I really I really believe this about All in the Family, where the joke is supposed to be at Archie Bunker's expense. And right. And, exactly. and you're supposed to be laughing at him. But a lot of people ended up laughing with him. And so the, the intended yeah. message is kind of lost where people are just going to see what they want to see and take out of it what they want to take out of it. And I, I get the sense that a lot of the black critics critics of black exploitation had a similar reaction that if the intent was this, they're seeing it as perhaps the unintended consequence of it as being damaging to the community. Exactly. So what was the commercial response to this? Because that, that obviously has a, an important role to play. We've talked about the capitalist production of these, these mm -hmm. things. You know, were they profitable? And was this a, a good step for not just black actors, but you know, the whole production is, is using black artists. So you have writers, producers, production assistants, the, the props people, like all of these roles. There's a reason why film credits take like 10 minutes because there's a lot of people involved exactly. in a movie. So if these films are giving opportunities or providing opportunities for more and more black people within the film industry, is there an offshoot where there's commercial success, which provides even further opportunities for folks within the industry? Definitely at the time. I mean, black exploitation in its early incarnation was incredibly popular, especially in cities. And as I mentioned in the book, that was sort of where film exhibition was getting the most money at the time, was in cities. And it was incredibly popular. Unfortunately, the lasting impact was brief. I mean, black exploitation kind of came and went. And when it went, so too did opportunities for black artists. So... And because black exploitation was always sort of outside the studio system, as soon as the studios regrouped, because they were quite hit in the 60s and 70s, but then regrouped, they shut people out of the studio right. system. So it immediately went back to what it had been before. And then what you primarily see, as I'm sure you know, in the 80s is um, black people in buddy films, yes. right? So always the sidekick until you get the new black realism of the 90s with the um spike lee john singleton the hughes brothers uh, making all of those movies in the 90s that were quite popular um you don't really see a lasting impact unfortunately um i mean some of the people who had great success in black exploitation went on to continue making movies and um I'm always mixing them up. Melvin Van Peebles made the black exploitation film and his son went on to make films in the nineties, um, which I'm sure partially was because of the success of his father. But yeah, I mean, you, again, because the studios really kind of take power again, you don't see that. And, and as I said, I mean, you really rarely see it today. And certainly, you know, the Oscars so white a couple of years ago, uh, really yeah. highlighted that for for a lot of people and it, it's something that 
it's it's so interesting because you know phil i i i'm i'm interested in film but uh i i would say i'm i'm i've a greater awareness of what's going on in the broadway community but it really seems like what lin-manuel miranda did where he just casts based off mm -hmm. of talent and and certainly he had an idea of um, not wanting to have all white cast represent every white person in Hamilton. But when you go to a show, I always find that when there's a black actor, they have to almost explain the the blackness. Yes. Which, it, which yeah. never really makes any sense to me because the person can just be a person, right? We don't have like, like mm -hmm. a white person in a film or a Broadway show, their whiteness is never or very very rarely explained and that that lingering exactly. need to explain someone's presence in something it it seems like an offshoot of all of these cultural things that you're talking about in this this way in which culture has presented black people throughout the 20th century yeah absolutely i mean i'm forever arguing with students about the Marvel movies, which of course have completely taken hold in the zeitgeist in a way that is sad, but they, I mean, I, I always say to my students, why can't Iron Man be black? Like who says Iron Man yeah. is white? And you know, their, their answer is always like, well, he's white in the comic book. I'm like, but it, this, who cares? How many people read the comic? Right. Like it's, I mean, why can't, there's no reason why these characters can't be black and there's no explanation other than racism. Like it's because there's, you know, as you say, like, why can't Thomas Jefferson be a black man? Like it's, you know, it, Hamilton is a fictionalized play. It's not, uh, it's not required that people look a certain way. So, I mean, yeah, Obviously, I mean, what Lin-Manuel Miranda did was quite extraordinary because not only did he give jobs to a lot of people who normally don't get jobs on Broadway, but he, you know, taught people that there's, you know, that there's no reason why rap and hip hop can't be part of Broadway. Yeah. Like it's, you know, but I, I think that's a very rare combination and you certainly don't see it a lot in Hollywood, mainly, again, because the studios don't give money to those productions yeah and, and you often the response is well you know it's a meritocracy and the best rise to the top and that that's been right. demonstrated not to be true right that, exactly uh, yeah, yeah. exactly and it can't possibly be the case and i don't want to imply i mean there are tons of incredibly talented non-white artists they just don't get the money to produce these big films yeah and you don't get the second chances either. So if you have a film that is commercially not successful, you're less likely to get right. the second chance. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, so let's get back to just sort of some of the broad strokes in the book. And what, what do you think the legacy is of this era on ideas of black masculinity and the way in which black masculinity is presented in popular culture in the 21st century? I think that what I found for me at least to be true that still has an influence today and did throughout the 20th century is that that there's a certain commodification of blackness it's treated more as a consumable product than a lived reality so it's easy to you know say oh but 
I wrote a book about a black man or I made a movie in which there was a black character or, you know, whatever it may be without considering the way in which the representation um, doesn't embody a three dimensional lived reality. Instead, it's this these consumable small little stereotypes that we have um, consistently used throughout the 20th and 20th and 21st century as something that, frankly, white consumers can be comfortable with. Those things might change, like the stereotype might shift. I mean, of course it does. Context changes everything. But we're still finding that, again, it's all about what's palatable to a white audience. And frankly, also to the white artists who, again, don't often, I mean, some do, but don't often question their own positionality in that creation. Even just the fact that, you know, people will create characters and then, again, as I argue in the book, you can sort of live in that fantasy, but you get to come out of it and live in your white reality, which is very different than people who can't shed their uh, perceived identity. Yeah, it's very similar to the book uh, Black Like Me, where... Uh, right. Yeah, it's exactly. sort of the exact same idea. Like I'm going to go live this experience, quote unquote, and have an authentic exactly. experience. And then I'm going to not do that anymore and and yet claim exactly. authority over it. So, uh, yeah, very, uh, very interesting. And, and certainly a reason for people to go get the book. Again, the title is he thinks he's down white appropriations of black masculinities in the civil rights era. Where can people get the book if they're interested? Uh, it's for sale uh, through UBC Press. It's for sale through Amazon. Um, unfortunately, because of the current reality, it's not um, available at conferences because we're not <laughs> yeah. having any, uh, but it otherwise would be. But yeah, um, you, uh, I would say UBC Press if you go to their website and it's available yeah, there. So I actually forgot to ask you this at the start, but what has it been like? to publish in the midst of this, right? The, the publishing date on the book is June 1st. And we, you know, over the course of the summer, we've had some folks who have had books come out during this time. And I, I just, I feel so much for you because when the book comes out, you're looking forward to having a launch, people around, you have, a, a, it's a celebratory moments because so much goes into these things. Just what has that process been like for you? You know, it's been a little strange, obviously, <laughs> like everything. It's been a little strange. I I mean, I was it, it still had the same level of excitement for me, but it you're right, it didn't have um the sort of the steps that you think it's going to take next, although my department has been uh quite lovely about um uh, trying to plan something at a distance. Um uh in order to recognize the book, but yeah, it's 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 like so many things during COVID where it almost feels like it's not happening because um, it it didn't feel didn't take the steps that you thought it was going to take. But again, people have been very kind, and the publishers and uh, I'm not just saying this because they might hear it, <laughs> but the publishers at UBC Press have been phenomenal and have been incredibly supportive and have done everything they can to support the book. Good to know because you know, sometimes you get you hear horror stories of university publishers, academic publishers, they get their grant from the government, the assist to academic publishing and put the book out and then they're done with you. 
And uh, so, so it's good to yeah. know that, that they're there supporting you, especially during this time where, you know, it's it's just so hard to to break through and, and get people to to pay attention to the book, it's, which is so important and such an interesting part of understanding our cultural environment today. Appreciate you taking the time to join me. Where can people find more about you personally if they want more information about you and your work? On the Carlton website really is where the most, I don't, I know I'm terrible. I don't have a website. <laughs> uh, maybe I should take this COVID time to do that. But yes, on the Carlton website and my contact information is there and people should feel free to contact me if they want to talk more about the book. Catherine Bush, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. So there you have it. My conversation with Catherine Bush, and I thank her for joining me again. The book is He Thinks He's Down, White Appropriations of Black Masculinities in the Civil Rights Era. And you can find it over from our friends at UBC Press. And if you head over to Active History, I will link to it in the write-up for this episode. So that will do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please do go give a like and a rating wherever it is you get your podcast. And, of course, subscribe to the show to keep up with all the new episodes we are doing. We have, of course, been going weekly through the pandemic. So do head back and check out some of those shows. Last week had Kyler Zeleny talking about urban-rural dynamics, specifically what's going on on the prairies. Again, another episode and a subject that is very close to my heart. So uh, definitely check that out and some of the other material that we've done since the pandemic and even before. Uh, we've had some great stuff over the past year, I think. A lot of uh, interesting topics that I've had uh, a, a lot of fun talking about with folks from around the world. So if you have any ideas for the show and what you'd like to hear, please do get in touch. History Slam at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. And of course, do head over to activehistory.ca to check out all of the great work being done over there. So that'll do it for this week. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.